Tonight we begin the very first teaching of Kingdom 101. And I've entitled this, Meet Matt. Matthew, <laughs> simply. I want you to meet Matthew. And if I declare this one line to you, I want to see how you respond. This is the time of March. It's going to come to April. It's time to file your tax returns. Now, n- none of you said amen to that. You just laughed at me, right? It's, it's time to file your tax returns. Now, how many of you would consider that good news? <laughs> right? I mean, somehow, we, we don't associate any news from the tax man as good news. Amen? Unless uh, the budget declares and to say that for one year, we'll have a tax holiday. Hallelujah. But when we say it's time to file your taxes, oh, uh, we, we, we procrastinate, you know, we can't find our IRA, uh, we don't know how to log in, we don't know, you know how to do all these kind of things. How do we associate good news with the tax man? But we know that Matthew, if you read your gospel, he was a tax collector. So the gospel, according to the tax collector. So I feel it's important for our very first session, we must meet Matt. We will introduce the book of Matthew as an overview. And this will be like your guiding points as you come back next week or the week after, or as you journey through, this would give you a good framework. Even if you should miss a few sessions it will help you still in your own study, okay? So, let's meet Matthew. Matthew, as we know, is the writer of this gospel. We're not going to get theological because many commentators and many scholars have debated whether it is him or it's not, whether it's Greek or was there a Hebrew copy. Let's not bother so much about that first, okay? I just want you to meet this man called Matthew. And his name, Matthew, actually means gift of God. Gift of God. Wow. It's a beautiful name. Matthew is actually mentioned only twice in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And we first meet him in chapter 9, verse 9, which we'll get to sometime. And we find him, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now, this is not um, uh, an air-conditioned place and in Revenue House. Okay? For them, a tax office would just be a little table where they set up on the road. But he was there. Now, what was he doing there? In chapter 10, verse 3, when uh, the, the list of apostles are named, we are introduced to Matthew as the tax collector. Now, we have already established this point. Now, what do tax collectors do? Matthew, for his occupation, he actually served the Romans. Now, at a point in time, the guy who was in charge over that region was King Herod. Okay, so these names are familiar. He served King Herod, and he was collecting taxes on the goods that would pass from Damascus to the Mediterranean Sea. So I suppose you would call him a civil servant. He worked for the government, the Roman government. Any civil servants down here? We love you. 
and he could hire locals as runners. And because the, the Romans wanted to give them a good bonus, they are actually allowed to overtax so that they can receive a profit. All right, so if the government requires a tax of, say, 20%, he could put on top of that for his own profit. He was probably an educated man, also probably wealthy through his means. As a local there, he was familiar with both Greek as well as Aramaic. And in the Gospels, it also gives us some clues that he worked for the Romans and he's very familiar with, that, uh, familiar with the Roman language Latin because there are certain words like the, the Latin quadrant that is quoted in Matthew 5.26 or the fragello, which is the Latin flagella. Uh, these are all uh, monetary terms. And they, he uses all these things um, to, to describe. Now, as a tax collector, we know that Matthew was despised by the Jews. And they will always mention tax collectors and sinners in the same breath. So if you go through the book of Matthew, you will see that they will say, oh, you are always numbered amongst the tax collectors and the sinners. They are mentioned in the same tone. So tax collectors are not nice people that uh, everyone loves. They do not like them. They think that they are traitors. They are working for the government and uh, they are to be despised. Now, at the same time, we see that in Mark chapter 2, 14 and Luke chapter 5, verse 27, Mark and Luke refers to him as Levi. Now, again, there's, divide, there's a debate. Is Levi and Matthew, are they the same persons? You know? And if so, why uh, 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 did they not mention uh, Matthew the Levi or Levi who was called Matthew? You know, something like that. So there's a lot of debate. But let's just suppose that Matthew is the same person as Levi. Why Levi? Are you familiar that there's one tribe of the 12 tribes that is named after Levi? And so we ask ourselves, could it possibly be that Matthew would have been born in the tribe of Levi? He comes from a Levitical tribe. Now think about this. There are major implications for this as we, as we process this. If that is true, then he was born to be a Levitical priest. He was born as someone who would serve in the temple as a scribe or a priest, but he ended up as a tax collector. He would be someone who would have had an assignment, but he would be doing something else. Now, this is important. I want you to reflect and think about this. Could it be that he was formerly Levi and later on he changed his name to Matthew after meeting Jesus? Just like Paul was known as Saul before he was Paul. Now these are all uh, uh, things that we can, we can suspect or you know, try to postulate. But I thought it would be good as a Bible study to bring this point up to you. It's good to also note that Matthew, it is only he himself that uses this term, a tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector. And it's not because he was proud that he was a tax collector. But I believe he used this name or this title, a tax collector, to describe himself to show and declare the mercy of God. 
upon someone who could have gone wayward, who, who would have been distracted, who would have missed this assignment, but because of Jesus and His grace, He is called back into the purposes of God and His kingdom. And we see this from someone who serves Caesar or Herod. Now today he serves King Jesus. Someone who was a middleman for the Roman government, he now becomes a priestly mediator that brings people to Jesus. Someone who would be very good in keeping strict accounts for profit, he becomes a scribe, a scribe to record accurately the good news of Jesus Christ and His kingdom. Someone who was despised where he would take from others, he became Matthew, God's gift, where he is now, his life, poured out for other people. Isn't that wonderful? That when we go through the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, we see throughout Scripture the grace of God, the love of God, the faithfulness of God. And so that's Matthew and if we look at this gospel in relation to other gospels, we know that Matthew is the very first gospel in the New Testament. What would be the others? We have Matthew, we have Mark, we have Luke, and we have John. But Matthew somehow in the canon was placed as the very first book in the New Testament. And we will see very soon that it serves as a bridge, actually, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not only that, it highlights the importance of the Old Testament that would provide the context for our New Testament. Now, as we go through this later on, in this whole session, I'm going to show you the importance of the Old Testament to Matthew. What was the focus of the Gospel of Matthew? What was Matthew's uh, uh, um, main thing that he wanted to share with his audience? If we look at Mark, you will find that Mark actually talks about Jesus and positions him as a suffering servant. Luke would position Jesus and show his humanity as a son of man. John with the seven I am statements. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John was trying to position Jesus as the Son of God. But for Matthew, Jesus was the Messiah to come. For Matthew, he was writing to a Jewish audience, which by that time, they were wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he the Jewish Messiah that we have heard so much of and people are now disputing? Because this was written, written in about, at about 60 AD. So many years would have gone by and you know, you know um, they didn't have the internet then, but they would have also stories you know, and an oral tradition floating around to say, are you sure Jesus is the Messiah? Are you sure he's the one to come? Are you sure that he is the son of David? And so Matthew's purpose is to write to the Jews, God's chosen people, with one very, very clear message. Jesus is King. Jesus is Messiah. And if Jesus is King, then Jesus has a kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom of God belongs to Jesus since He is the Messiah. 
Now, in every book study, we will look at one verse that will be important that sort of summarizes the, the emphasis of the entire gospel. And I, I like this one. You know why? Because it's Matthew 4.17. I get excited these days when I see the numbers 4.17. Do you know why? Because, yes, Archippus Awakening is from Colossians 4.17. And I say, Lord, so coincidental, ah. And Matthew 4.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Matthew wants to declare Jesus as the king, that he is the Messiah prophesied of in the Old Testament. And the king comes onto the scene, and with the authority that has been given to him, he declares his kingdom. This is the message of Matthew. And that is why when we wanted to launch something for our keepers awakening that would be a service to the body of Christ, I felt the Lord say to me, teach the kingdom. Teach the kingdom. Declare the kingdom. And I said, yes, Lord, I will do that. You know, and I, I, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, I'll buy books about the kingdom. I'll read it and I'll start to teach it. And then the Spirit of the Lord said, teach from Matthew. I say, Matthew, why Matthew? Everybody knows Matthew already, right? And everybody knows it so well. Why do you want to teach from Matthew? And the Lord says, because it's about the king who declares his kingdom. Jesus declares his kingdom in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. And for some of you who are still wondering, what's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? There is no difference. Okay, Matthew was writing to the Jews. He was respecting the term God. They, they, they feel that they regard it so holy and so reverent that they cannot use the word God. And so Matthew replaces it, the kingdom of heaven. And it is mentioned 32 times in the book of Matthew. That's his emphasis. The king declares his kingdom. Now, if Jesus is the Messiah that's prophesied of in the Old Testament, you will discover right through the entire gospel that the Old Testament is very, very significant. Simple reason. Matthew writes to Jews. Jews know the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's as straightforward as that. And so Matthew would draw from Old Testament to lay his foundation and to give evidence that Jesus is the Messiah who is to come. There are 60 plus Old Testament references. Scholars, commentators, they are a little bit divided as to the exact number. So it's easier to just share with you 60 plus. Some say 65, some say 70, you know, and depending on how you want to uh, read the text. Obviously, some would be very direct quotations. Others would be just a, a reference uh, to the Old Testament. That's why it's so difficult to pinpoint. But as an exercise, if you want to go back and count, uh, that would be a good exercise, a uh, good homework for you. Huh? Um, more than 60 references. Matthew writes nine times with this phrase, It is written. It is written. Do you remember Jesus in the wilderness, right? Um, the devil tempts him and he says, it is written. Now the translation, although in English we say it is written, 
a nice nuance is to hear it as, it stands written. Are you following? Okay. That means it's not, it, it, it's not that it's something that is just written. No, it stands written. In other words, there is an authority in the Word of God. And if it's written, it stands. And the Word of God stands forever. You can take it to the bank in that sense. Yeah? So nine times we see it is written. All this is here. Um, you can take notes if you want. Yeah. We won't flip to these scriptures for the interest of time. Not only that, we see that there are 12 uh, times that Matthew uses this phrase, that it might be fulfilled. Right? Okay? You'll see certain times where Matthew will say, and this happened, that this might be fulfilled. So he's saying, Scripture says, and Scripture stands as it is written. Not only that, Scripture is accurate in that because it is written, it is fulfilled. So you will see the 12 direct quotations with some uh, uh, slight changes for emphasis as we go through Kingdom 101. I pray that as we uh, get into detail of some of these passages, there will be time uh, for us to dive deeper into some of these uh, uh, scriptures in the Old Testament. So isn't it wonderful? You come to learn New Testament, but bonus, you learn Old Testament. Two for the price of one. Isn't that awesome? Right? And so you, you, will, you will learn the New Testament, and we will reference the Old Testament, and you will see the harmony of Scriptures in both Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament is important as critical to the Jewish um, audience, and I've already made that point. So Matthew spares no effort, obviously led and prompted also by the Holy Spirit. He says, look guys, Jesus is the one. Look at your scripture. Read it. You've been looking forward to this, this Messiah. You've been looking forward for this, to this time. You've been looking forward to His kingdom. This is the time. Scripture says it and scripture has been fulfilled. At the same time, Jesus Himself declares it. He refers to the Old Testament. And he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. That's his phrase of a Jewish phrase that means the Old Testament. They never called it the Old Testament, by the way. Right? They called it the Scriptures. Jesus himself declared it. He says, Look, I did not come to throw it away. I'm, I'm upholding it. And I'm going to fulfill every aspect of it. Some now, some in time to come, but it's going to be fulfilled. Now, not only that, the apostles, the early apostles, they taught it. Now, many times we in the church, when we quote um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, equipped also for the assignment that God will give to us. We know this very well. But let's be honest. Let's admit it. When we see a Scripture, we tend to think New Testament also, right? Okay? We, ex we extended that promise into the New Testament. I'm not saying the New Testament is not God-breathed. But when Paul wrote that to Timothy, did he have the New Testament? What testament did he have? There was only one. 
right? It was the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, this is important for us because there are, there are, there are, there are schools today or, or schools of teaching today where they tell you that the, the Old Testament is redundant and is irrelevant. That is not a right teaching. Do you know Old Testament is still being fulfilled? Amen? Right? And so we need to understand New Testament in the context of Old Testament. In Paul's time or in the, in, in, the, in the time of Israel, they may not have understood Old Testament. When Jesus came, something opened up. And today, by God's grace, because of progressive revelation, we who have the Old and the New Testament, we have no excuse. We are privileged people. We have the Word of God. Yeah? So when you read the Old Testament and when you read the New Testament, I love this one verse from John chapter 5, verse 39. And I always quote it and remind myself, Jesus was telling the leaders, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And so I would like to remind each and every person that as we go through a study of God's Word, let us not only focus on the Word, that we miss the one that the Word seeks to reveal. Can I have an amen? Yeah? I know there are many Bible studies across town. You can go on the internet and there will be Bible study. But do you know something? You can search the Scriptures, memorize it, and score A plus and miss Jesus. And I don't want us to miss Jesus because if you miss Jesus who is the King and the Messiah, there is no use understanding the kingdom. You can only have understanding of the kingdom if you know the context of Jesus, who is the king. So you search the scriptures in them, you think you have eternal life, and in there, there is the promise, but eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus whom He sent. So the Old Testament is relevant. Don't throw it away. Just across last weekend, I attended this conference that we were privileged to co-host. It's called the Jubilee Gospel. And um, if you want to know a teaching of that, there are, there are teachings available. But you know something? That the Jubilee Gospel is so beautiful, it's so wonderful. And you know where it's taken from? Leviticus. How many of us would run away from Leviticus? But people have studied it, they, they have you know, revealed it, and they have had a, have, they have had a revelation that the Jubilee is not just once in 50 years that we celebrate as G50. Then they were supposed to do that. But when Jesus came onto the scene in Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19, He declares, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. When Jesus came, Jubilee became every day. You see, if we don't understand this, we will throw the Old Testament away. The importance of the Old Testament can be seen through also the, uh, the structure of Matthew. We have 28 chapters. We have 1,071 verses. I didn't count. So if I get it wrong, don't throw stones at me. Maybe miss one or two verses. But in consulting certain, uh, the different commentaries, this number pops up quite a lot. Okay? So if you like to count it, it's fine. <laughs> 
how do we understand these 28 chapters? How do we understand these thousand over verses? We can see them in a threefold structure. And here you will see from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 16 is like a part 1. Then there's chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through to 1620, which is part 2. Then there's 1621, all the way through to the end, 28, verse 20. That would be like a part 3. Now let's look at how Matthew deliberately structured it in this way. It is interesting again to note that in verse 417, he starts this part with, from that time. Can you see? So right here, he describes something, and after that, it's, it's almost like, act one, the scene one is over, let's change scenes to scene two. From that time, Jesus begins to declare the kingdom. And we see in 1621, there's then a change from scene two, now to scene three. Okay? And it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So if you want to title these three portions, this is how I would broadly do it. This first part would be the introduction and the preparation of Jesus. The introduction and the preparation of Jesus. Second part would see Jesus moving around his Galilean ministry. He's always around the Sea of Galilee in the region of Galilee up north. And you remember when you come to chapter 16, this is where he's up north in Caesarea Philippi. Now from that point, from that time, we have part three, which I call it the Jerusalem conflict. Yeah? He begins to move towards Jerusalem and we see a mounting tension and opposition from the Jewish leaders. And we know how that ended. Our Lord was crucified and later, of course, after three days, He rose again and met with His disciples. So this is the threefold structure of Matthew. Now within these three, Matthew also records and arranges certain teachings of Jesus in what we call the five discourses. These are like five sermons where Jesus stays in one place and He teaches either the multitudes or He speaks and teaches to His disciples. Yeah? And um, in between, before and after, are what we call narratives. And He teaches along the way. Uh, as He sees something happens, uh, He will bring an illustration about it and He will make a reference to it. Okay? So there are five discourses. And it can be simply uh, divided into uh, things that we know. Sermon on the Mount. Books have been written about this. You cannot finish reading them. Okay? Everyone has a perspective of how to understand Sermon on the Mount. That's 5 to 7. Uh, we have the commissioning of the 12, Matthew 10. Then we come to the parables of the kingdom. And after that, I call this the community of the king. And finally, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 23 to 25. Now, you take this down, but you will find that at the end of all these discourses, Matthew records, 
when Jesus had finished. You see? When Jesus had finished. When Jesus had finished his, his sayings, when, finished, when Jesus finished commanding his disciples, when uh, Jesus finished these parables, you know, and for Matthew, that was like his clue to his readers, finish already sermon, <laughs> okay? Uh, you, you can go on to the next part already. Now, I shared with you about the Old Testament, right? Now, stay with me on this one. If you look at chapter 1 to chapter 4, you realize it actually starts with creation, which is the book of Genesis. It's like the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And next week, when you come back, we're going to talk about the genesis of Jesus Christ. And we begin with a genesis and the birth of Jesus Christ. Later on, we will see that actually it moves to a story about Egypt, which is paralleling the Old Testament story of Exodus. Correct? And we move from Genesis to Exodus and later on uh, to, to uh, 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 Leviticus and to uh, uh, Numbers and then to Deuteronomy. And Matthew sort of uh, uh, finishes all these things and uh, parallels all these five sermons with even Old Testament development. Now let me show this to you. The first one is Moses where there's already been a deliverance and now Moses gives the law from Sinai. Jesus goes up onto a mountain and now delivers the law from on top of that mountain. So Jesus is like the new Moses. And that's why he goes through and he says, look, you guys, you need to understand kingdom righteousness and kingdom perfection. If you want to know what it's all about, listen to what I'm going to say to you. He releases the law just as Moses delivered the law from, or received the law and gave the law from the top of the mountain of God. Jesus then gives the correct interpretation. Remember he says, you have heard it said like this, but I say this to you. Right? The king has his interpretation. The king shows you how to apply the kingdom laws. The king shows you how to live with kingdom understanding. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, of course, this whole par uh, um, sermon ends with uh, when Jesus had finished his sayings. It parallels Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 45. Moses finished speaking all these words to Israel. Exactly the same. Because he gives the law a second time, remember? Yeah. So it goes on and it's followed by a narrative. And after Jesus preaches the kingdom, he demonstrates the kingdom. And then he teaches along the way. Now we come to chapter 10. Chapter 10 actually starts one verse before, a couple of verses before, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now we know this verse. But this one verse parallels Moses' words in Numbers chapter 27, verse 15 to 18. And Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out, bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua. Right? Appoint Joshua. Inaugurate Joshua. And 
because of that, we see this portion, we begin to see Jesus as the new Joshua. Joshua will bring them into the land. And Joshua is a man of war, right? And he brings them into the land, and it's a period of conquest. So if you read Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus commissions his apostles, and he says now, you go, don't take money with you, you go into the village, declare the kingdom of God, and advance the kingdom. Can you see it's about conquest? It's about kingdom going out and taking territory. Not only that, there will be opposition that comes against them. There will be persecution. And that's why Jesus then tells them, don't worry, I will be with you. You are more precious to my Father. You know, uh, I will, your, your hairs on your head, they are numbered. You know, so just go out there and take the place for kingdom of God. See, Jesus is then positioned as the new Joshua. He says, you want to ascend kingdom of God? You expect opposition. Because when you go forth, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Now, this is really odd for us, right? Because we're always talking about Jesus, the Prince of Peace. But Jesus himself says that if you really declare the kingdom, sometimes they will come against you. Huh? It's not because of peace or anything else. They just hate you. Just because you declare the name of Jesus. Even your own family members will laugh at you, will spit at you, will push you out of your house. Now, the third discourse is about the parables of the kingdom. And so just before that, it is preceded by a reference in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, where Jesus was saying that the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Then he goes into parables. And he speaks the mystery of the kingdom. And we find that in this section, wisdom of the kingdom is spoken through the parables of Jesus. Jesus is the greater Solomon. He says, you want to understand my kingdom? Then you've got to understand the mysteries of my kingdom. And if your heart is open, if your heart is ready to receive the kingdom, those who have, my Father will give even more, right? And those who don't have, even what he has will be taken away. And then he talks about the, the parable of the soils and the parable you know, of the dragnet and the parables of the fields and the tares and so on. He says, you want to live kingdom? Then you understand kingdom. But you be careful because kingdom wisdom is upside down from kingdom of the world. Jesus as a new Solomon proclaims wisdom for kingdom living and how to understand the kingdom. And I believe that if we heed the words of Jesus to live the way of the king and the way of his kingdom, then we will have people like the queen of the south who will flock to this kingdom and ask, how do you do it? Who is your king? Why do you live this way? By the moment we would ask ourselves, are we something like the kingdom of the world? <laughs> Where people look at us you know, and they, they don't realize, they don't notice any difference. See, the kingdom of the world as spoken through Jesus in the parables. What follows this is a narrative. John the Baptist gets beheaded. More miracles Jesus performs. But there's also increasing conflict and increasing tension. And we finish there in Caesarea Philippi. Discourse number four, sermon number four, which I call Community of the King. You will notice it's preceded by a narrative 
And in there is the Mount of Transfiguration, another mountain. In Matthew chapter 17. And in Matthew chapter 17, there's a reference to Moses and to Elijah. Now Moses, we've already dealt with. Jesus says, look, I've come, I'm giving you this law right now. So everyone is now asking, who is Elijah? If Jesus is the new Moses, then who is the Elijah? And so Jesus says, haven't you heard? Haven't you looked at John the Baptist, right? He's come and nobody likes him and they killed him, you know? And so he says, he has come in the spirit of Elijah. And I believe in this section, Jesus is portrayed as an Elijah, a prophetic character. And as he commissions his people, his church, this, this portion here is representative and illustrative of the divided kingdom. Where Elijah, people like Elijah and all the other prophets, they had to live, you know, in, in a kind of a schizo, kind of a, you know, they, they are serving one kingdom, there's another kingdom over there, you know, and, and they are called out once. They live different kinds of lives. In the same way, the church, we lived as called out once. And we are likened to Elijah and to Eli Elisha in the time of a divided kingdom. And you know something? Although they were all Jews, they were all people of God, people like Elijah, Elisha, they were all rejected by greater Israel, the larger body. Now think about this. These are all God's people. And God's people will still reject God's people. Now this is important because you have to decide. If you live kingdom, Sometimes people in the church may not understand you. If you talk kingdom, they will look at you and they say, why are you so fanatic? Right? If you begin to obey kingdom, they're going to look at you and they say, no, lah, you know, that is for the Old Testament. It doesn't happen right now. Can you see that? And they're going to ask you questions. And I believe God is dismantling certain thinking about what, Churchianity is all about and restoring an understanding of his kingdom. Elijah and Elisha, they train up a company called the Sons of the Prophets and they will live in, in, an, in a separate community. I believe we as a people of God who understand kingdom will live separated lives. And in Matthew chapter 18, you will find that these are kingdom principles. Jesus says, be humble, be lowly. If someone offends you, you know, forgive them. You see, these are kingdom principles. If someone sins against you, then bring it up to the elders and, 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 and institute kingdom discipline within the body of Christ. This is the church. And I suggest to you that perhaps we have not embraced this kingdom principle in our communities, and that's why we are struggling. And last but not least, the fifth one, it's really a portrayal of Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel or prophets of their nature. We find Jesus as, uh, is preceded with, with a narrative, their teachings. He enters Jerusalem. He comes into the temple and he has conflicts with the religious leaders. In Matthew chapter 23, we hear Jesus pronouncing seven woes. Woe, 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 yeah. Seven woes, okay? And this is parallel to Jeremiah, where he also pronounced woes. 
Jesus also, like Jeremiah, as he looks upon Jerusalem, laments. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. You know, Jeremiah wrote an entire book called Lamentations. He was lamenting over Jerusalem. At the same time, we see shades of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, where in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it records, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. The one who is named Glory departed from the temple. And in Ezekiel, we read of an account, right, where the glory shifted and shifted and shifted. And after a certain time, it departed from the temple of no more. And so this is uh, uh, Jesus departing the temple, the glory departing in that sense, and it signifies for us the end of the temple system. This is the end. The glory has totally gone out, symbolically. I know it went out in Ezekiel. But Jesus is saying, look, even I'm going out right now. And what glory and what uh, a promise we have today that you and I, we today, are the temple of God. Amen? And the glory is with us because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and we carry the glory. We read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, Jesus warns of desolation. Just like Jeremiah in chapter 22, verse 5, also warned of desolation. You see, this is five, these are five messages that are delivered to the people of God to tell them once and for all, the king has come. There's a new law in place. Not that it replaces, but a new understanding of the law that we live by the Spirit and no longer by the flesh. There is a conquest that's led by Joshua and the twelve are the appointed leaders, you know, for the church age. There is a Solomon. There's a greater wisdom, a kingdom wisdom that we understand. There is an Elijah, a separated type of a community, and that's what church is all about. We are called out once. We are separated once. And, and finally, that guys, the temple is gone. It's over. If you want to know the temple, believe in me. The Holy Spirit will be given to you and now I will make my habitation within the people of God. Can you see Matthew's very detailed and, and, and very, uh, 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 right, uh, uh, what, what we call deliberate structure, you know, in, in, in bringing this message? Now, friends, this is a very short summary of Matthew. <laughs> really, if you, if you read the commentaries about the theology, you know, uh, about the, the structure, about the period, uh, about the purpose, and about, you know, who is Matthew, who is not. It's going to take you a lot more. But you see, I want to get to this one thing. We are here for Kingdom 101, amen? So I have an ulterior motive. I, I want to bring it to an application for us. No point having all this information and it, it doesn't help us to apply Okay, or it doesn't help us to grow. Now, what are the implications for us? What will be the emphasis and the key lesson? The first is this it is written, God's word will be fulfilled. Now, you notice this is different from what I've written before. It says that it might, that this happened so it might be fulfilled, or God's word was fulfilled. 
I'm saying to you, God's word is still being fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled. Now, as we understand the ministry of our Keeper's Awakening, we are in an end-time ministry. And of greatest significance to us, perhaps, would be this phrase. But as the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. My dear friends, can you, can you indulge me and answer this question? Are we in the days of Noah? Do you believe we are in the days of Noah? And if we are in the days of Noah, let's look at some of the things that are coming against us. Jesus says that there will be earthquakes, right? The, the weather will go freaky. It's going to go crazy. Uh, they talk about global warming. We, we don't know how accurate that is. But all I know is we are getting super typhoons. Do you know what this is? This is the Ebola virus. Just when you think it's going to come you know, to some control, there could be something else that's mutating. You understand? Because of the consequence of sin, humanity and creation is crying out. Let me show you some other pictures. You know this. This is passe already. But because of this, it started a, a whole focus of the world about terrorism. We now live in fear. It has morphed into this. Do, do you know what this is? If you don't know, I will ask you, where have you been? If you don't know, man, you need an awakening. Because of these guys, 21 Egyptian Christians, you know this one, right? Okay, it's all over the internet. It's all over the news. What is this one? Boko Haram. Another terrorist group. Goes into the school, snatches all the girls. What's happening to our world? So when you read Matthew and you know God's word has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, don't stop there. God's words continue to be fulfilled. Old Testament continues to be relevant and it will be fulfilled. This is just a map quickly. If you want to Google this, it's, an, it's, in, it's under Open Doors uh, website. These updated, most persecuted countries for Christians. Okay? So the red parts here are the Middle East. The orangey parts are severe, okay? The red is extreme. And then the slightly greenish part down here is called moderate. Man, in China, you call it moderate. Almost every pastor there have been, has been jailed before. And that's called moderate. See, as the days of Noah are, we are living in those days. So when you read Matthew, understand this. How about on the social front? Do you know this flag? How many of you have never seen this flag before? Okay, some of you have not, okay? This is the gay flag. The LGBT flag. And if you don't know what LGBT stands for, it stands for lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transsexuals. Now they add a Q after that, queers. All kinds, you know? Now, in Facebook, you can choose your gender and if you are confused, just say, I don't know. 
see, this, this is happening. Eh? And next time you eat a rainbow cake, can you count how many layers there are? Everyone is baking rainbows cake, rainbow cakes now. Now, God gave us a rainbow. Praise the Lord. How many colors in the rainbow? Seven. How many colors here? Six. You see? It's a deliberate twisting and a perversion of what God has given to us. Man is perverting. Now, this is scary because the church, by and large, do not think this is a problem. They say, well, nothing to do with us. They can do what they want to do. They are redefining society for you if you don't wake up. They are redefining marriages. Okay? And so they are redefining marriage. They are redefining sex and sexuality. And that's why if your church is conducting or will be conducting or there's any conference on sexuality, can I suggest attend it? Okay, it's not only for people addicted to pornography. Okay, we have to understand the new uh, language of sexuality that is in our community. And so as kingdom people, we have to understand the enemy that is coming against us so that we will know how to pray and we will know how to respond. Today is 18th of March. In two days' time, we will see a solar eclipse. This will happen in the midst of what we call the tetrad. Some agree, some disagree. I don't care too much about it, you know. But if it's a sign from heaven that God is calling our attention to say, Hello, wake up. It's not church as usual. Then I want to join Him in awakening the others. Amen? And I want you to awaken someone else because God is using signs in disguise to announce something. So don't look down. Look up. Don't, 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 don't keep worrying about your O-levels, A-levels, PSLE, and your KPIs. Look up. Because God is saying something to us. There's a lot of talk about this. I'm not going to teach on this because I'm no authority on this. Some say, yes, there will be a collapse. Some say, it's nonsense. All we know is America is deeply in debt. Many countries in the EU, they are deeply in debt. The whole world is revolving and surviving on debt. And there's only that much that we can sustain until a time when the bubble bursts. How do we live? No one really knows, you see. What's going to happen after that? You want to buy gold? How many gold bars can you have? How long will it last? You see, these are signs of the times. And is to, if we know Scripture will be fulfilled, then our eyes are not to look at these things and worry what's going to happen because God says, yet once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth. But you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that's why I say, Lord, I want to know the kingdom that cannot be shaken because the church will be shaken. Is that amen? You don't believe me. The church will be shaken if the church doesn't understand what the kingdom is all about. God's word will be fulfilled. And our response is that because we know God's word will be fulfilled, regardless what anyone says, there's a certainty that we can carry within our heart. 
But we know that the collapse or you know, any of these kind of things, when we look at it, we may feel very distraught. Because God's word will be fulfilled, the story doesn't end there. Someone can teach Revelation separately. But Jesus says that He will be with us. Amen? Right? And He will walk us through. We can have comfort. Because we know God's word will be fulfilled, we not only have comfort, we must have courage. We need courage. I find that too many men and women of God, we are fearful. The moment something happens, how, how, how? It's not how. Who's the king? Where's his kingdom? If we do not know the king and the kingdom, knowing your pastor may only help up to a certain point. Knowing your cell group may only help up to a certain point. And I pray that your pastor and your leaders and your cell leaders will point you to the king and the kingdom. That's our only hope. We must know Jesus and his kingdom. But you see, it doesn't stop there. We have to understand Jesus and his kingdom, we live now with the cause of the kingdom. We live every day with purpose. If you woke up this morning and say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do today, very sincerely, then can I tell you, you've got no cause. You have no kingdom cause. If you wake up and you're wondering, oh, uh, what's church going to organize? Uh, my leaders, uh, no direction, will never organize anything. Then you're waiting for someone to give you an activity to do. That's not our keepers. Our keepers will go to the Lord and say, what's my assignment, Lord? And if it takes me six months to know this, then I will pray, Lord. If it takes me a time of solitude with you, then I will take time out to spend time with you, Lord. If I need to hear from your word, then I will read your word until you receive a word from you, Lord. And if, I am, I'm, if I'm too dull in my senses, then Lord, let me fast. Say amen. We live with kingdom cause because we are really in those final days. And that's why Jesus asks this, who is the wise and the faithful servant? He says, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If you can say amen to the days of Noah, then you must say amen to this verse too. We don't get to choose which verse we like or say amen to. They are all amen. <laughs> Whether we accept it or not. And one of my greatest uh, uh, motivations these days is to first ask myself, Lord, how ready am I when you come? And as a ministry, I wouldn't ask, Lord, as I get myself ready, will you allow me this grace and this privilege to provoke others and walk with them that they too might be ready so that we will not be found in slumber when the Lord comes. Now, I know some of you in your hearts, you're wondering, but I thought rapture firstly. <laughs> you see, to me, it's not about the rapture or no rapture, pre-trip, mid-trip, or trip over or something else. That's a wrong question to ask. The question is, whether it happens, doesn't happen, when it happens, am I ready? Am I ready? Matthew was written to the Jews, God's people. And I want you to notice this, that God was speaking to His covenant people. They were given the Scriptures 
but they were dull of hearing. Judaism became institutional and a hierarchical structure. The rich were considered blessed and favored, and the poor were despised as if God overlooked them. The people of God began to serve a foreign system, but end up oppressing their own people. The people of God had wrong expectations of the Messiah. They misunderstood and missed the king and his kingdom. Now, please don't sit there or when you listen to this and you say, Yala, so silly, Jesus come, also don't know. My question for us today is, we are God's covenant people. How are we faring as God's people? Would you agree with me that this same message that's written to God's people is relevant to us as God's people? So don't read and think, oh, it's only for the Jews. No, understand it from a Jewish context. But don't disregard it as if it's irrelevant to us because you and I can commit exactly the same mistake. And we can become, you know, having the scriptures and the promises, but we become dull of hearing. How many times have we been guilty to say, oh yeah, this message, I've listened to this before. Nothing new, no. Everything also the same. I am changing church. Oh, I don't like this speaker. So I see this speaker, I go somewhere else. And we become dull of hearing because we are hoping for that something that would tickle us. Have we become an institution and a, and a hierarchy that is difficult to turn like a big ship? Have we become, as someone has written, uh, the church, you know, like, like a big cruise ship instead of a battleship? Cruise ships are fun, you know. You pay, all expenses paid. You go in there, a lot of activities to do. You eat and do kaupun. And you know, the, some cruises, uh, they are called the cruise to nowhere. <laughs> I don't want to go nowhere. I want the kingdom of God. <laughs> do we serve? Have we, have we only lifted up the rich? That if you are rich, then you are blessed. And if you are blessed, then you must be rich. So if you are not rich, then you are not blessed. There's a gospel like that. Do we serve a world system chasing our own dreams, our rat races, but missing the oppressed and the marginalized? See, friends, this is something that is important for us, is it not? To consider as God's people. So when you read Matthew, don't miss this. Don't miss this. David Platt says, we are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity or the kingdom is actually about abandoning ourselves. Jesus says, deny yourself. Today we have a gospel that says it's all about you. God wants to bless you so much, He cannot sleep if He doesn't bless you. Can you see the problem here? Okay. And so, let's close with this. Let me just give you a few questions. Huh? Time has gone by so quickly. 
But I pray that this would have provoked you to think a little bit more deeply as you prepare your heart for Kingdom 101. This journey that we will take through the book of Matthew. I have threefold, uh, an objective that's threefold. And will you say this with me, everyone? Okay, let's go. Know the king, embrace the kingdom, receive your assignment. Okay, now quickly, a few questions. Who is Jesus to you? Carry this devotionally. Really, who is Jesus to you? Don't give me standard Christian answers. I mark a lot of student scripts. I know the standard answer. I want to know who is Jesus to you. You want to know who is Jesus to you. The second question is about embracing the kingdom. Do we understand the good news of the kingdom? Do we really know? If I ask you today, sit down, speak with me, talk to me about the goodness of the kingdom, will you just tell me, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven? Most Christians will tell you that. Now, if you don't embrace the kingdom, then you can't understand church in the context of the kingdom. And if church doesn't have context of the kingdom, we are just another gathering. That's what it means, church assembly. If you want to embrace the kingdom, then you have to come to this point of discipleship. Don't argue with me. Don't fight with anyone. Uh, is there a believer or a disciple? Or a disciple first and a believer? A believer first and a disciple? Nah. You want to embrace the kingdom? Disciple. No two ways about it. You want to embrace the kingdom? Disciple. That's it. Don't, don't argue. Okay? But you want to embrace the kingdom, are you ready for offense and opposition? I'm not saying that it will definitely come to you, but it might. Finally, about receiving your assignment. If you look at the book of Matthew, it starts with the Jews. It was written to the Jews. Who does it end with? It ends with the Gentiles. Right? Go into, all the, uh, go, go into the world, make disciples of all nations. Don't you love Matthew? Because of Matthew, you and I as disciples, we are part of the kingdom. So it moves from Jews to Gentiles. It moves from local to global. It moves from salvation to service. And I pray that through Kingdom 101, 28 chapters, 1,071 verses, that you allow the Lord to align you to His kingdom. That you will receive an assignment of the kingdom. Some of you may get it along the way. Some of you may get it later. Some will get it earlier. It doesn't matter. But will we covenant with one another to say, if you are in, I'm in. If you hold my hand, I will hold your hand. Just don't drag me too hard. But we will come together. And will you pray for me? Because the one that has to prepare learns the most. Hallelujah. <laughs> but you know, very jalat. So I want you to pray for me, right? Because this is only one initiative of our Keeper's Awakening. And the Lord has lined up other things in the second half of the year. And as a community, an assembly of our Keepers, we will share bits of this as the Lord will give us permission to slowly announce. But pray for us. Pray for us together. Pray for anyone even listening to this recording. That the Lord will awaken them. That they will come into an alignment 
that they will desire their assignment. And so I leave you with this to say that the journey continues. Share with your friends. We know we only have 10 dates, of which one is already over. But you know, the way I'm teaching Matthew, there's no way I can finish in the next nine. So journey with me. 